Well, that's a long scripture reading. You would hardly believe that we cut some things out in the middle to try to compress it into just that span. But we did. The story of Noah is a very lengthy one in the telling of Scripture, a bit repetitive at times. I want to let you know that if you go to the Scriptures and you read it beginning in chapter 6 all the way through, you'll notice that the author seems to say the same thing several times over. It's an early ancient story that was told before it was written down. And so in the telling, it would seem there are multiple voices. And rather than leave any voice out, they put them together. They all say similar things, but in different ways. And so some of the pieces of it are said one after another after another, but they come together in this cohesive whole of this story of Noah, the ark, the flood, and God in the midst of it all. And it's where we are to begin today. Let us pray. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. This is not an easy place to begin the story of Scripture, certainly not as straightforward as it would have been if we had started with the magnificent poetry of the seven-day creation, or if we had even just followed Adam and Eve through the garden in that tragic encounter with a particularly sneaky snake. Even the troublesome tale of the first murder when a spat over burnt offerings led Cain to mercilessly attack his brother, well, even that might have been simpler to explore than the account of Noah and the great flood. Because we might read this story to our children out of illustrated Bibles. We might decorate our nurseries with cute animals processing two by two under cartoon rain clouds, but we cannot escape the difficulty of this text. And yet it is perhaps... It's difficulty that makes it the perfect place to begin because it speaks to that difficult yet all-important question. What is God like? When we come to this divine human story, we arrive with some understanding of what humanity is like. We don't have to spend very long in this world to know that we are, as a group, not doing as well as we should. And we need to know how God responds to that, how God responds to us. Is God merciful? Is God just? Is God gracious? I have more questions. One in particular, though admittedly less important, which is why didn't Noah swat the two mosquitoes and refuse to even let the wasps on board? Because I find it hard to believe that the world wouldn't have been better off if neither had made it through the flood. I've always thought that about mosquitoes. The wasps is a more recent thing because I had a run-in with some wasps about a week and a half ago. It's in the backyard with Jennifer, my wife, and our son, and our dog went out of nowhere. Moose tracks, our dog, started running and spinning in circles and generally flailing about while yipping and whining. And I couldn't tell what he was doing at first, but as I got closer, I could notice that he was trying to get his head around onto the top of his back to snap at something. And then he desperately wanted to go inside, and so I opened up the door to the little three seasons room off of the back of the house, and he rushed in, and I took a quick swipe along the back, and then that is when the wasp emerged, and I could hear it before I could see it, and it sounded mad. It sounded incredibly mad as it buzzed around us, this sort of grating noise, and I could feel myself instinctively drawing my shoulders up and scanning about the room, and then I found it. I found it eventually. It was resting for a moment on the window screen. It was a big wasp, 
a long and shiny black body with slim yellow stripes along its abdomen and very unhappy to be trapped in that situation. I wasn't much happier with the situation either, but I left it there and foolishly went back into the yard to see if there were any more wasps. There were. Uh, They found me before I found them, and as I ran back to the house amid their ominous buzzing, one of them managed to sting me, the upper arm, and it was painful, immediately, deep and piercing, and it made me mad. Pain can reveal some uncomfortable things in us. I like to think of myself as a merciful person, and generally, when I come across a bug in the house or in the yard, somewhere where it shouldn't be, I take pity on it. Usually I can either manage to hurt it out a window or I can coax it onto a bit of cardboard or paper to be carried back out into the great outdoors. But with a sting slowly becoming a welt on my arm, I felt differently. I gave the wasps some time to settle. Apparently they're quieter in the evening. And so that night after the sun had settled behind the horizon, the little one had gone off to bed, I got out the aerosol can of Raid from the garage and I suited up. I wore long pants and a rain jacket I could pull over my hands and cinch around my face. Now, it looked a little bit silly, and I think we might have a picture of this if I managed to get it synced up with our... There it is. I got suited up, and I looked silly, but let me tell you what, it was effective. There wasn't very much skin showing, and so when I went out, got close to their nest in the ground, the wasps did start attacking me. I could feel them as they bounced off of my hood, but I was not stung as I doused their home in poison. For a moment, I felt powerful in my vengeance. You attack me and my family at my home, well, I'll bring the fight right back to you and worse. Say hello to my little friend, little friends. I was a mighty conqueror, lord of my domain, godlike in sudden and powerful judgment. But that moment passed rather quickly. The emotions waned, and I was left holding a mostly empty bottle of pest control, standing over a patch of dirt damp with chemicals. And I was suddenly glad that my son was asleep in his crib, because I wasn't sure I wanted him to think that this was who I was, a father quick to leap to retribution as some sort of a solution. How stifling and terrible It would be to live under the eye of a father watching for any misstep, ready to strike back swiftly and stronger. The flood narrative is sometimes told as the story of a heavenly father quick to issue a severe judgment on a wicked world to prove some ambiguous point and to keep all of creation fearful of God's mighty wrath. But I think it might be a more complicated story than that. Now it does open on a wicked world filled with a people so thoroughly evil that the scripture tells us every idea they had, every thought that they had in their head was corrupt to the core. So corrupt that they had taken the world down with them. The entirety of creation was lost to evil and filled with violence. Even the animals God had so carefully crafted in creation had been infected by the wickedness humanity had brought into the world. But God is not angry, and God is not looking for revenge. The sixth verse of the sixth chapter tells us the Lord regretted making human beings on the earth, and he was heartbroken. God is sorry 
who have made humanity pained to witness the brokenness of creation, overcome with grief at how far astray everything had fallen in such a short span. The flood that will come does not flow out of God's indignation or out of God's vengeance, but out of a deep pool of sorrow held in God's broken heart. Now, God is not a simple character. Not here in this story and not anywhere where the story of God is told. There's still plenty to wrestle with in the tension between God's justice and mercy, knowing the overwhelming and challenging upheavals that justice can bring. But it is perhaps breathtaking to know that God would be heartbroken over creation. And what is a heartbroken God to do? In one sense, God lets creation go. In verses 12 and 13 of chapter 6, God sees that the earth and all of the creatures who live on it are corrupt. And then God says to Noah, I am about to destroy all creatures along with the earth. But curiously, the word used here for corrupt and destroy is in Hebrew the same word. God is not escalating or reaching for a punishment but rather letting creation reap what it has sown. Some rabbinical teachers throughout history have suggested that in the language of these most ancient stories, natural consequences are attributed to God, even if God didn't do it, because it was God who created the laws of nature that brought the consequence about. Humanity in its sin has undermined the very foundation of creation. And so it is perhaps no surprise that the whole of the earth will now come tumbling down on them. It is a tragic but fitting ending, though God refuses to let that be an ending. God does not give up on creation even as they work for their own destruction, and God works in their destruction for renewal of creation. And it begins with Noah. Noah is a giant of a man in our storytelling, but decidedly more ambiguous in the text itself. The Lord approved of him, Genesis says, which doesn't carry much moral weight, just says that God liked him. In his generation, Genesis says later, Noah was a moral and exemplary man, but considering the state of the world, it wouldn't take a whole lot to rise above the standards of his generation. In the end, it very well might be that Noah is just the only one crazy enough to actually build an ark in the middle of a desert landscape just because God said to. I mean, he's either crazy or faithful, and maybe both. But he does fill, he does build the ark. He follows all of God's instructions to build this behemoth of a boat. The boat isn't the word used here, despite the fact that there is a perfectly good Hebrew word for boat. God tells Noah to build a box, a big one, with a lid, like one we'd fill with heirlooms packed in bubble wrap to safely tuck away on a truck making a journey to a new start in a new place, but not without our most precious possessions. And there are three decks to fill in this box Three decks to fill with all of creation, just as God had once filled the earth with creatures in the water and on the land and in the air. And so Noah builds this box, 
And then God fills it. God takes the whole of creation, folds it up into just two of each animal, and then tucks it away safely as the world is undone around it. That's maybe the best way to describe what happens with the flood. The world is undone. The story of creation begins with deep waters that God hovers over, and then God separates into the sea and the sky. It's described in that story as though God has put up something to hold back the waters of the sky. It leaks from time to time. That's rain. But here in the flood, that separation is removed, and there is nothing but deep water as the water of the sky comes crashing down into the water of the seas, and it sweeps all of creation away. There is again nothing but deep waters, and the inhabitants of the ark, of the box that holds all of creation as tight and compact as it can be in silence, until there is again sky above and sea below, And then in an action echoing from the very first creation story, there is a wind and God draws out dry land from the waters. And then God lands this precious cargo on the mountaintop found there. The world is empty again. Sea and land and sky, but God will fill it in some sort of a new creation, though not entirely new. As the doors of the ark open and the inhabitants of the old world are sent out into the world to make a better one than before. But not much has changed. Not much has changed and we're not off to much of a better start than we were in the first place. Noah gets off the boat and then falls off the wagon in quick succession as the story continues. And then it's pretty much all downhill from there. The violence and the evil of the world found its way onto the ark somehow and into the heart of God's people. And the flood didn't seem to fix much of anything. But God doesn't decide to give it another go without the ark this time. In fact, God decides the opposite. This is my covenant with you. God says to Noah and points to a rainbow. In the sky, there will never again be a flood to destroy the earth. There's some delicious wordplay here. The bow in the rainbow is like it is in English, the same word as we would use for the bow that you'd use with an arrow. And so it signifies not just that God has put up something beautiful in the sky, but that God has placed a weapon there in the sky, not as a reminder of what God could do with it but as a reminder of what God will not do. Because no matter how bad things get, no matter the depths of depravity or wickedness that shall be found on the earth, God will not reach for destruction. When we strike each other in never-ending cycles of violence, God takes the blow and does not respond. When humanity tears at the fabric of the world, God's heart is broken and God does not respond. When we live with greed and hate and corruption and wickedness, it pains God, but God does not return what God receives from us. It is this way, here and throughout the whole of the rest of Scripture, all the way through to a man who once claimed that he was God. And when his followers insisted that he fight back against the world's violent oppressors with sword and warfare, he showed that he was God by responding with suffering. Instead, violence doesn't save, the theologian and priest Richard Rohr wrote once. 
Violence doesn't save, it only destroys in both short and long term. Jesus replaced the myth of redemptive violence with the truth of redemptive suffering. He showed us on the cross how to hold the pain and let it transform us, rather than pass it on to the others around us. It is a lesson learned there at the foot of the cross, but found first here, in a rainbow, after a flood. No matter how far we fall, no matter how broken we are, God does not give up on us. As we celebrate in the waters of baptism, God reaches out to us wherever we are, not because of what we have done or will do, not because of what we believe or because we've said something right along the way, but because God loves us. God loves us and would not create a new world without us. Even when we can hardly believe it in ourselves or in others, when we seem far too gone, when the only reasonable thing seems to be leaving us to reap the destruction we have wrought, God does not give up on us. Aristotle, the ancient Greek philosopher, once wrote that hornets and wasps have nothing divine about them, as the bees have. A little over a week ago, I would have been inclined to agree but it seems that God would disagree, saving even that which seems least redeemable for life in a new creation. There haven't been many who have studied wasps throughout the years, no doubt because they sting and seem like generally inhospitable and terrible creatures. But I happened to read in this last week that there was a study done just last year that found that wasps and all the varieties of them, the stinging wasps especially, are vital to ecosystems They pollinate flowers, and they eat smaller creatures like aphids, which help the plants that would otherwise be taken by them. One PhD student involved in this study credited the wasps in his final dissertation because they stung him 186 times as he studied them. But he knew that if he didn't respond in kind, then even the creatures who struck out with the most violence, those who seemed the least worth saving, might be cherished and loved just the same. This is how we know that God loves us, and this is how God knows us, and what God is reminded of every time a rainbow crosses the sky, that however far we have fallen, God loves us and will never give up on us. Thanks be to God. Amen. Friends, I invite us to continue in Scripture as we sing together our